You are listening to the sermon podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org. This morning we continue our series in Hosea. And so let me ask you a question. Have you ever broken a promise of someone who loves you? Have you ever broken a promise of someone who loves you? In your marriage relationship, have you ever broken your promise to them? In your parent-child relationship, have you ever broken your promise to the one that loves you? In your friendships, in your mentorships, if we're honest, right, we're all covenant promise breakers. (laughs) There's only one who is a true promise keeper. And as Hosea continues this theme of covenant, it's important for us to understand that is what's guiding God and, and what he's trying to communicate through Hosea, this covenant, this covenant that God has with people, that he is a faithful keeping God. And yet we see continually in this book, in Hosea, how God's people have been unfaithful, how they continue to breach the covenant and break the covenant, right? God's covenant with his people is about entering into a relationship with us to, to redeem us, to show us, show us mercy and grace, to redeem us and to, to reveal himself. And so he makes promises to us that he keeps 100%. In fact, the word covenant appears 300 times in the Old Testament. See, it's out of God's deep love, and mercy, and loyalty that he entered into this covenant with his people. That is why he uses a symbol of marriage in Hosea between Hosea and Gomer. Hosea lives the message of God's gracious, merciful, faithful covenant love for the unlovely, right? His, Hosea's wife, Gomer, continued to reject him. Even in his pursuit of her, continues to break. She continues to break her promise to him. But this ultimately reminds us that the heart of the covenant is Jesus Christ. It is the covenant promise of Jesus Christ that unites the Old Testament and links it to the New Testament. Indeed, at the core of every covenant institution, the covenant that that God made with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David, with Jeremiah, the Lord Jesus himself was the better covenant. So keep that in mind as we look through Hosea, because we need to hold on to that hope. That this better covenant, Jesus, covers us. Because this passage this morning shows us that Israel forgot God and forgot his covenant. And so God is continuing to use Hosea to call God's people to repentance in order to restore that relationship with him. So follow along as I read Hosea chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. Set the trumpets to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. Because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we Israel know you. Israel has spurned the good, the enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurred your calf, O Samaria, my anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel a craftsman made it. It is not God, 
the calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall weep the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire alien allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the kings and princes shall soon with because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. And Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire among his cities, and it shall devour their strongholds. This is a word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, again, as we gather around uh, your word this morning, and as we just pick up on the theme of repentance, Lord, we pray that you would just continue, Holy Spirit, to move among us as well to see where we need to be repenting and resting in the joy of our salvation in Christ. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The other day I, had a, I meet with a pastor on a regular basis. We've developed a really good friendship. And so I asked him, what are you repenting of? What are you repenting of? Now that might sound like a strange question to ask a, uh, another person in your life. It might say, Jeff, you seem to be getting a little personal there when you're asking that question. But here, uh, again, I, this guy and I have a good relationship. We talk like that to one another. So I was surprised at his answer. He said, nothing comes to mind. He shared how his life and his relationships are in a good place. Now, this pastor understands the gospel. This pastor understands his need of grace. But what he basically was saying to me that he was not repenting. Then he turned the question to me and asked me, what am I repenting of? And I gave him some things that I've been repenting of. But even as I list those repentance, it seems superficial. So I thought to myself, and so I want us to think about this as well, should it be normal for the life of a Christian not to be repenting? Should it be normal that we lack repentance in our relationship with God? Martin Luther opened the Reformation by nailing the 95 Theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. The very first of these theses stated that our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, willed, listen, willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Willed the entire life of the believer to be one of repentance. Now, on the surface, that might seem depressing. Luther seems to be saying that Christians will never make much progress in life. But that, of course, is not Luther's point at all. Luther was saying that repentance is the way we make progress in the Christian life. In fact, pervasive all of life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. Now consider, we've talked a lot about the gospel in a series that I did in January. 
Consider how the gospel affects and transforms the act of repentance. In religion, quote-unquote, the purpose of repentance is basically to keep God happy so he will continue to bless us and answer our prayers. This means that religious repentance is selfish, self-righteous, and bitter all the way to the bottom. We'll talk a little bit more of that in a few minutes. However, in the gospel, the purpose of repentance, hear me, is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ, right? Repentance and joy go hand in hand because as we tap into our union with Christ, it weakens our impulse to do anything contrary to God's heart. We will more, less and less break our promise to God in this relationship that he's established with us. Friends, God calls us to repentance. In fact, all of life is repentance. Part of being a Christian is one of repentance and faith. And in this chapter in Hosea, we learn of God's people struggle to repent. So this morning, I want us to answer three questions. What are the barriers of repentance to repentance? What repentance is not and what repentance is? So let's first look at what are the barriers to repentance. That'll be verse 1, verses 7 to 10, and verse 14. I will not read them again, but the first barrier to repentance is self-reliance. Self-reliance. During this time, God's people were so into themselves, they did not even see the need to repent. Their idol worship, their allegiance to other nations, their going to other people for advice led them to live the life they wanted to live without any regard to God and his covenant. Verse 1 of chapter 8 is very clear. They transgressed the covenant. See, even their attempt of worship, we see in this section, was defiled, was corrupted, and was broken. Their so-called religious pursuit was about what made them happy. Usually in religion, we are sorry for sin only because, hear me, the consequences for us. Sin will bring us punishment. We want to avoid that for the most part, so we repent. But even in this case, Israel at this point, we're not even in that place to recognize that. But the good news for us is that the gospel tells us as Christians, sin can't ultimately bring us into condemnation. What does Romans 8.1 say? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, yes. So the ugliness of sin, the heinousness of sin is therefore what it does to God. It displeases and dishonors him for it breaks the covenant that he has entered in with us and established with us. See, in religion, repentance is self-centered, self-reliant. The gospel makes it God-centered. It's, in religion, we are mainly concerned of the, the consequence of sin, but in the gospel, we are sorry for the sin itself. This is how it can play out on relationships, right? If I say something um, wrong to my wife and I can just say, hey, hey, Val, I'm really sorry to make you feel bad. I'm really sorry to make you sad. That's self-centered repentance. What, what, would, what would be a God-centered repentance would be, I am sorry for the words that I said to you. They were unloving. They were unkind. I sinned against you. That is what we're acknowledging. That's what God is looking for in our repentance. It's, it's not self-reliant, but it's God-centered. The second barrier to repentance is hypocrisy. 
Again, during this time, God's people really thought they were okay with God. Look at the passage. They thought they were good with God. I know God, they say. But their deeds prove otherwise. The people of God forsaken what was important to God in the covenant. And what was important to God? This love relationship that he had with them. And his desire for us to love others. He, we failed to, to show mercy to others. They, they have no pursuit of knowing him and finding life in him. They are looking to so many other things other than God himself. So they appeared religious through their worship of Baal and their idols, but they were far from it. Again, religious repentance is full of hypocrisy and self-righteousness. They did not see their need of God. Repentance can easily turn into an attempt. Maybe, to, maybe they were doing these things to atone for their sins that they got in themselves into. Who knows? In which they convince God and themselves that they are truly miserable and regretful that they, deserve, that, they, that they deserve to be forgiven. But yet Israel doesn't seem that they're in that type of response at this point. But again, let me compare this to the gospel. We know that Jesus suffered for our sins. We do not have to make ourselves suffer to merit God's forgiveness. Do you hear me that? We simply receive the forgiveness earned by Christ. God forgives because he is just. What is 1 John 1, 9? He is just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a remarkable statement. It would be unjust of God to ever deny us forgiveness because Jesus earned our acceptance. Jesus Christ is the better covenant. See, in religion, we earn our forgiveness with our repentance. In the gospel, we simply receive it. A barrier to repentance is self-reliance or self-trust. It's hypocrisy, self-righteousness. And the last barrier I want to focus on is bitterness. Look at verse 7. Again, Hosea is using agricultural terms to explain how far God's people have gone. It says, for they saw the wind, they sow the wind, and they, weep, they shall weep the whirlwind. Standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. This, these, this passage gives us a graphic picture again of the effects of sin, right? We see their sin of idolatry, of allegiance to other foreign powers, and of consult, consulting godless leaders had led them to utter corruption. As Paul warns the church in Galatia, he says this, they weep what they sow. They weep what they sow. And for Israel, at this time and at this moment, it is not good. They became blind to their sin. They did not see their need to repent. And it had current and future impact in their lives, in their personal souls. Again, it brings to mind that religious repentance is bitter all the way down. You see, in religion, our only hope is to live, live a good life, a good enough life to require God to bless us. Every instance of sin and repentance is there for traumatic. It's, it's unnatural. It's, horrible, it's horribly threatening. It messes us up. Only under great distress do religious individuals admit that they have sinned because their, hope, their only hope for religious repentance is their moral goodness. Israel, again, has not come to that realization we see in Israel no moral goodness at this time. But it makes us take notice that we too can't be morally good enough to earn God's favor and acceptance. 
in the gospel, the knowledge of our acceptance in Christ makes it easier to admit that we are flawed. Do you hear that? It is in the gospel that the knowledge of our acceptance in Christ makes it easier to admit that we are flawed because we know that we won't be cast off if we confess the true depths of our sinfulness. See, our only hope is in Christ's righteousness, not on our own, so it is not as traumatic to admit our weaknesses and lapses. We should be free to say, you know what, yeah, you know, I am struggling with discontent. And I, I know I should have been able to have said that to my friend, right? Hey, I'm, I'm struggling with dis- discontent, but as I went to the Lord, he reminded me of some things, and we'll look at some good responses maybe for us to consider, right? I'm okay with confessing to others because I know that my life and acceptance is in Christ and not in my works and in what, and who, and what they think I should be. Again, whereas religion, we repent less and less often, but the more we feel accepted, listen, the more that we feel accepted and loved in the gospel, in Christ, the more and more often we will be repenting. Although there's some bitterness in my repentance, in our repentance, in the gospel, listen, there is sweetness. There is sweetness when we repent. What does David say when he's repenting? He says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. He understands as he is as he's humbly going to God, confessing his sins, he knows that there's joy that he can experience in being forgiven and being saved and being renewed. And that's what, that's what our repenting does. We're reminded of God's grace in the midst of our struggle. You see, the sin underlying all other sins is a lack of joy in Christ, for we forget the extent of his amazing, amazing grace. And that's the bottom line of all our barriers to repent. Look at verse 14. What does it say? Read that together with me. What does it say? For Israel has forgotten his maker. Say that with me. For Israel has forgotten his maker. See, Israel's sin was a breach of the covenant. At the root of this breach of the covenant was the plain fact that the nation lived in willful obliviation to God. They acted without reference to God, thus breaking the covenant. They forgot him on purpose. See, this word forgetting is a volitional term like remembering. They are acts of the will. To remember, right, is consciously and willfully to think about something. To forget is consciously and willfully to refuse to think about something. And in Israel's case, forgetting God is the most serious offense. Here again what one psalmist said. It said, the wicked, the evil, shall be turned into hell, and all the nations forget God. See, this is the reason, the bottom line reason, is, is that they've forgotten God for their need to repent. They need to remember, again, God's love, his promises, that he's been so faithful in communicating with them. They've forgotten the covenantal love of God. They were without excuse. Hosea is bringing the point home to them. God has been eternally faithful in communicating his will and his promises. And yet they choose to forget. They choose to forget God himself, the most wonderful relationship we can have. They have forgotten. They broke their promise to a faithful, gracious, holy, loving God who loved them completely and thoroughly. You see, an unrepented heart is one who is self-satisfied, self-reliant, is proud, it's hypocritical, cold and bitter, and it's a heart 
the heart of all that is that they have forgotten God. So is there any way out from these barriers? Yes, repentance. But what is repentance and what is not repentance? I will give you one example of what repentance is not and then focus on what repentance is. So what repentance is not? Look at verses 2 and 3 and 11 through 13. Look at what verse 2 says. To me they cry, my God, we Israel know you. Israel has spurned the good, the enemy shall pursue them. That passage to me gets to the heart of what repentance is not. It is not penance. It's not about doing things to appease God. You see, God, Israel wanted to be seen as near to God when they were not. Penance centers on what humans do. It's a form of self-justification. What do I need to do to make myself right with God? There's always something I need to do additionally to make certain that I am right with God. That's what penance is, is about. Penance focuses on what we see and feel within ourselves. Here only, we are only sorry for ourselves and not sorry for the sin we committed against God or against others. It's about making me feel better about myself. Penance makes the believer powerless and imprisoned. It's based on self-trust. And there's no power, there is absolutely no power, hear me, there's absolutely no power in depending upon ourselves to get the Christian life straight. It only leads to more frustration and lack of joy. Penance seeks out a human priest instead of Christ. We're looking to ourselves to alleviate the guilt and shame, but only Christ can take it and make us acceptable to God. George Whitfield, an 18th century pastor from England, who ordinarily conducted his personal inventory at night, laid out an order for regular repentance. He once wrote this, God, give me a deep humility a well-guided zeal, a burning love, and a single eye, and then let men or devils do their worst. So with this in mind, looking at some of the, the aspects of what he pursued, I want us to see what repentance looks like for us as Christians. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, For godly grief, godly grief produces a, pre, a, a repentance that leads to salvation, without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul in Romans 2, chapter, um, chapter 2, verse 4 says this, And do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, sincere and real repentance flows out of resting deeply in the covenantal love of a holy, eternal God. It flows out of this God who's always the promise keeper, right? It's in it, and it's God's mercy and kindness that we see in Christ that leads us to repent. You see, true Christian repentance involves a heartfelt conviction of sin, a, a contrition over the offense to God, and a turning away from our sinful life and turning towards God in hopes to live a life that's more honoring to him. So with that in mind, Tim Keller has provided some helpful examples of sincere and real repentance. And he's taking Whitfield's categories. So let's talk about deep humility versus pride. And I'm going to read some statements 
in this section, and then I'm going to have a, a good repenting response. But listen to what these statements, and maybe some of these statements you identify with under this humility versus pride. Have I looked down on anyone? Have I been too stung by criticism? Have I felt snubbed and ignored? If that is you, repent something like this. Consider the free grace of Jesus until I sense, first, a decreasing disdain, since I'm a sinner too, and two, decreasing pain over criticism, since I should not value human approval over God's love. And as you think about this, in light of his grace, I can, I can let go of the need to keep up a good image. It's too great a burden, and it's now unnecessary. I reflect on free grace until I experience grateful, restful joy. Or maybe this category describes you more accurately, wise courage versus anxiety. Listen to some of these statements. Have I avoided people or tasks that I know I should face? Have I been anxious and worried? Have I failed to be circumspect? Have I been rash and impulsive? So repent something like this. Consider the free grace of Jesus until there is no cowardly avoidance of hard things since Jesus faced evil for me. No anxious or rash behavior since Jesus' death proves that God cares and will watch over me. It takes pride to be anxious. And so I recognize in your prayer right to him that I'm not wise enough to know how my life should go. I'm reflecting on the free grace until I experience calm thoughtfulness and boldness. How about this category, burning love versus indifference? Listen to these, some of these statements. I have spoken or thought unkindly of, everyone, of anyone. Have I thought or spoken unkindly of anyone? Am I justifying myself by characterizing someone else in my mind? Have I been impatient and irritable? Amen. Have I been self-absorbed, indifferent, and attentive to people? Guilty. Repent like this. Consider the free grace of Jesus until there is no coldness or unkindness as I think of the sacrificial love of Christ for me. No impatience as I think of his patience with me. No indifference as I think of how God is infinitely attentive to me. I will reflect on free grace until I show warmth and affection. Do you see how each of these categories, he's reminding us as we are dealing with sin, he's reminding us of the grace of the gospel to help us, to forgive us, and then to renew us. See, godly, and this last quarter is godly motivations, a, a single eye. And let me list some of these statements. Am I doing what I do for God's glory or the good of others? Am I being driven by fears, need for approval, love and comfort and ease, need for control, a hunger for acclaim and power, or the fear of other people? Am I looking at anyone with envy or jealousy? Am I giving in to the first motions of lust and gluttony? Am I spending my time on urgent things rather than important things because these are inordinate desires? And he says this, repent like this. Consider how the free grace of Jesus provides me, listen, provides me with all I am looking for in these other things. This week I was uh, sharing with Michelle that I was just, just moody, in a bad mood, um, and we, I said, so we were talking a little bit at the end of the week, and, and um, said, what's going to help us? And I said, I guess, we need, I, I, need, I guess we need Jesus, I guess. 
I guess I need Jesus. Oh, no, I do need Jesus. <laughs> I think even by me confessing that out loud to her, we laughed about it. It is a funny thing. But it was a freedom to know, wow, that is, that is where I am, that I think I need Jesus. Man, I need to repent of that because I do need Jesus. Every day, every hour of the day, every moment of the day. So he ends and says, let's pray like this. Oh, Lord Jesus, make me satisfied enough to you to avoid sin, wise enough in you to avoid danger, that I may always do what is right in your sight. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. What we desperately need to see is that the love in the Holy God is manifested covenantly at the cross. John Miller, in his book, Repentance, I'm doing this with my guys that I'm meeting with now on Saturday mornings. He says this, In the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the Father promises to receive contrite sinners on a daily, no, hourly basis. The cross says, no matter what your sins, unlimited mercy is available to those who turn to God through Jesus' merits. That is so much freedom, isn't it not? In the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the Father promises to receive contrite spinners, sinners, not only on a daily basis, but on an hourly basis, even a minute-by-minute minute basis. The cross says, no matter what your sins, unlimited, unlimited, unlimited mercy is available to those who turn to God through Jesus' merits. Not our merits, Jesus' merits. See, at the cross, we find the infinite nearness and compassion of the infinite, majestic God. The Father, in the gift of his Son, Jesus, has put himself under eternal obligations to, to his returning children. Having satisfied the demands of his own holy law, the Father must now open his powerful arms and embrace every child who repents sincerely. And he must do this every time we sincerely repent of our sins. He has promised to do it. He, 1 John, right? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So friends, come repenting, daily, no, hourly, knowing that there is great joy for us in our repenting as we receive the pardon and the grace of a God and his promises to make us newer every day and every hour. So may I ask you, what sins are you repenting of? Now, you're not, you're not, none of you are going to come and shake my hand today, right? Because I'm going I'm I'm to expect an answer to those who, who shake my hand today. No, I'm just kidding. But I may ask you someday, and I hopefully somebody will ask me that as well. Because as we ask that question, the goal of it not, is not to be the sin police. It is not to be the goal to be the sin police. The goal is that we know that as we understand our need of Jesus, our need to repent, that in the midst of repenting, we find much joy in knowing that we're forgiven, that God has taken our guilt, he has taken our shame, and that he's committed to making us new every moment of the day. May we believe that more sincerely. May we help one another see that as we begin to more repent of our sins and embrace the joy that God has given us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do 
uh, need you every hour. Every minute of that hour, every second of that minute. Father, we cannot live this life apart from this renewing, sustaining grace that you provided us. Father, as we understand that grace, help us to more freely repent unto you and to one another, knowing that our identity is not based on what others think of us, but, Father, our identity is ultimately in what you think of us, and you think of us pretty radically good because of Jesus Christ. Nothing that we bring, only through Christ and his merits, do we provide and see that better covenant being expressed. So, Father, help us as we grow together as a church, as we desire to reach people for the kingdom of God, that we would be people walking in humility, resting in the grace of the gospel, being honest with who we are, freely repenting, and freely enjoying the great, great grace that we've been given in Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org.